Coming at you from Handsome Headquarters here in sunny Los Angeles, California. I'm Lee Sanger Golden, and you're listening to me talk on the internet. Well, it's been 10 days uh, since I was first diagnosed with COVID-19, the coronavirus. Um, symptoms still not abating, still feel cold, uh, you know, like I have a cold, um, but um, haven't had a fever in, a, in the past couple of days, which is good. Uh, my wife is not, she's ran a little hot, but hasn't had too bad of a fever either. So it uh, looks like we're through the worst of it, but we're, we're still feeling it. Um, how are you doing, Ben? I'm, uh, I've been good, actually. A lot of outdoor time, communing with nature, planting, oh, mulching. Mulching, all right. Starting, germinating, transplanting. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, I got an avocado tree uh, and a couple of magnolias that uh, we're doing like a potted tree. We're doing like a potted arboretum in the back. And um, trying to work on these these avocados, the Mexicolas and... Um, I don't know if it's just the fall, but the, the leaves are kind of not doing so hot. And uh, I'm not sure if I'm over or under watering. Like they said, the guys at the nursery said, you know, every two days. And then some people say every week, you know, so I'm not quite sure what to do there. But, uh, you know, less is more in the winter. OK, you don't want to overdo it in the winter. OK, so I'll stick maybe every three days or something. But, you know. The, these young trees, you really want to nurture, but you don't want to overwater them, you know, so. Exactly. Yeah, my life is all about nurturing now. You know, I got to nurture these trees. I got to nurture my pregnant COVID-stricken wife. I got to nurture this this boy on the way. So, you know, a lot of nurturing to do. And uh, I hope our society, we can, we can move towards a more nurturing state and a less antagonistic, uh, antagonistic state towards each other. Um, Totally. Yeah, a lot of stuff going on in, in the news. There's this kind of big battle over these um, these unemployment checks. Right. So. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, some people uh, are saying, you know, you got your your Rand Pauls who are saying this is all socialism. We shouldn't give people shit. We should just let people suffer and die. And it's their fault if they're not rich like me. And then you got the Nancy Pelosi's who are saying, oh, $600, that's like a significant amount of money. And I'm like, that's, that's, I mean, for most people in your district, that's not even their weed budget for the month, Nance. Um, and then you got the more, you know, liberal wing of the caucus, the cockeye. Um, you know, you got your, your Bernie, uh, who's now independent again, but caucusing with the Democrats. He's saying we need the $2,000, not the 600. And then on the, uh, the, um, in the lower house, you know, you got AOC saying, hey, we need this 2000 as well. So Trump comes out and he says, I'm going to veto. I think we need 2000. We need 2000 direct payments. Totally goes against uh, what McConnell says he wants, which is the 600. And obviously McConnell wants to give people nothing. He wants to give people nothing. But after weeks and weeks of negotiation, finally, he says, OK, fine, you can get this six hundred dollars that that Nancy says is so significant. But now Trump, in a, in a sort of example of strange bedfellows, he's coming out and saying, we need the 2000. So suddenly Nancy Pelosi, who's telling her caucus for the last month, shut the fuck up about the $2,000. You'll get lucky if you get 600. Suddenly, because she can make Mitch McConnell look bad, she's like, oh, yeah, yeah, we need the $2,000. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And so suddenly Nancy is 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 uh, teaming up with with Trump. Um, but as my wife pointed out the other day, 
I think they do have a veto proof uh, majority here. And you don't really hear a lot about, about Trump vetoing things. And, and, uh, you know, Obama was always vetoing the um, repeal Obamacare stuff. But I, I guess you don't really hear about these, these vetoes, because it's not usually a surprise. It's like, either the Congress has the votes, or they don't to override. And if they don't have the votes to to override, they're not going to send it to the president's desk. And if they do, they will, because it doesn't matter. So we don't really hear a lot of veto drama, but I guess maybe I'm tuned out to that. I don't know. So what are you thinking about this whole sitch? Uh, uh, yeah, no, I think that, that that captures a lot of what we're, we're seeing right now. Um, I heard it framed, thinking about it from the perspective of looking at it more as a, organized as a mafia. The idea of you have, uh, different networks that in order to get something for their network members, they need to pay homage or respect or get someone into one of the positions in the mafia in order to get what they want. Mm. And what's interesting is that, um, so Sarah Shays has a forthcoming book called on corruption in America and what is at stake. And that book's going to focus mainly on all of the definitions that these multinational NGOs have created over the last few decades to find what they consider a failed or fragile state. Mm -hmm. One of the overriding qualities that they assign to the, what you call like the national level government um, of the nation state is that it's run very much like a, uh, a sophisticated network to enrich Mm -hmm. network members. And so it's never really meant to govern. It's not meant to serve as a government. And what we're seeing more and more is that's exactly what's happening at our national level. But before we go down that rabbit hole, to get back to the way you opened, I think one of the things that all of our conversations usually get to or at least tend towards is that what are alternative ways of organizing a society? And I heard a really great uh, podcast this morning on the Tom Hartman show who's interviewing Gar Alpervitz, who's of the Democracy Collaborative, one of actually the major collaborators on public banks that I work with. Um, but he's been around since, uh, I think, the civil rights movement, or at least Vietnam protests. So yeah. a little bit older than the both of us, possibly combined. But what he said, I think four or five Certainly times, or maybe, so. yeah, or maybe it was repeating. I, there was like, seemed to be glitches with my stream. But he kept saying the way to get involved is call six or seven of your friends, order a pizza and and get your favorite beverage and read about different uh, Mm -hmm. issues that are pressing in your local area and ways of getting involved. Demand to know if that pizza is DiGiorno or delivery and fight, physically fight over whether it's delivery or not. Or maybe one of your friends knows how to bake an amazing pizza and you value Uh, respect that but anyway so it's like so it's all under and what the way that he framed it is that it's not actually what we're what we're looking to devise in the future uh in a lot of ways is not your classical social socialism we're looking at more diffuse networks um that in some ways are uh replacing some of the power vacuum that's been uh, sucked away power vacuum, like the eight pound auric. Exactly. That's what I was going for. (laughs) 
So because Oryx's labor union was sucked dry mm -hmm. of all of its uh, dust particulates and matter, and then many others like it. So it really started with the Oryx, and um, it was shaved by Remington. Yeah. And basically what we have and is... Dyson came in here. Yeah, and so what we have is in the U.S., 6% of individuals in the, in the labor force are part of a union. In a lot of other, uh, what we call like, uh, what do you call them? Related or uh, similar countries to the U.S., Mm -hmm. Their union membership is anywhere from 50 to 90%. So basically, we want to rebuild unions, but we also need to organize other diffuse networks yeah. to push back on these powers. And so we want elements of what we call socialism, like being things like uh, the social programs like Medicare for All and, and universal rights, but then also using the state power to truly govern and, uh, and go after true criminals, not the petty individuals that you know shoplift or this or that or the other thing go after the real right. criminals don't take the obama clinton uh what biden's probably going to do and everyone since reagan which is oh it might dis it might disrupt our economic power and a blah 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 yeah. and then they'll you know make it sound like they're they're trying but they're really not so use that might to go after the mafia members and then what you want, though, is a lot of the ability to harness and support those bottom up networks. And the way to and the way I really envision that taking off, especially in cities in which money is still a basis of a lot of our existence, is every individual has an account at our central bank. And when new money is created, it's not done through a few steps removed from individuals, which is by buying bonds off of banks so that they have reserves and then they may or may not lend and then it might get to a person or a business. Just put it directly in people's accounts, little bits at a time, and people can aggregate it. You're not going to be able to, you know, there, there will be some outcomes you don't like, some you do, but that idea of that groundswell. But a lot of what I like is this idea of like, uh, right now, what you see is the more, what you might call progressive, but, you know, whatever you want to call it, the people that are labeled something like a socialist or something, the way they yeah. respond is not by even validating that, that, that assignment of that label because they know what people are really saying. It's a fear-based label. So what they say is just, what do I stand for? What do I believe in? And actually say something real. So I like this framing. That's how Hitler yeah. rose to power. He said, you guys are socialists, so we got to kill you. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, but I really like this framing of looking at most of other, I mean, we have a few detractors. We have the Bernies, the AOCs, Talib, some of them. I mean, Bernie's the only one that's been around a while. Mitt Romney, you could even argue, is Well, he invented Obamacare, or he was the first, uh, the first person to, uh, in government to implement this like private insurance exchange right. system. Which but he at least I'm broke with Republicans on, the, um, on a number of things. But it's like we have very few dissenters of the status quo. So most of them are part of the mafia. And while they might think that they're, you know, holier than thou, like the Democrats versus the Republicans, a lot of them in the Washington, I mean, that, that was a lot of the appeal of Trump to a lot of people was his anti-establishment drain the swamp. Yeah. Because, and, the and then the problem with, exactly. And the Democratic Party, the establishment, all the, the thinkers behind them, the, you know, the op-eds in the New York Times, CNN, MSNBC, all that just kind of talk to that fear-based thing like, oh, Bernie's not electable. 
Well, I mean, neither was Clinton, but it's like we never really saw what would have happened if we had two yeah. anti-establishment figures, one offering a much more inclusive and diffuse uh, future, the other one ethnocentric, white nationalism, whatever you want to call it, truly diabolical. But in the long course of history, when you don't have an alternative that's also anti-establishment, those people like Trump and his henchmen rise to power. Right. And and so, but I like that idea or that framing of it, of thinking about it as a mafia, yes. of even calling it a banana republic, as Ian McMasters calls it. Um, that we're looking more and more like that. Yeah. And it's 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 laughable, but it's like, let's work on the on the slow to day-to-day building projects of organizing around alternative um forms of of governance of money creation of value assignment of all these things and then when we and then when when we raise up you know uh criticism and critique let's make sure it's placed at the right place which is discourse on the systems what systems are broken and who are the people either actively uh trying to enrich themselves or using on the political side using their elected power to just go along with the bullies Right. And truly focus our onus there. So right. uh, does that answer your question? It answers. Or did I questions. just talk? Did I just listen to you say something and just hope that whatever I said may or may not have uh, addressed what you said? No, you absolutely directed uh, the conversation where it needs to go, which oh, is God to, validation to understand both the. Um, Republican political project of the last half century and the um, disarray that the Democratic Party has always found itself in uh, in trying to respond to that project. Because let's face it, the GOP has a project and the Democrats have been on the defensive for the past 50 years. Um, In order to understand that, you have to understand what happened to unions during that period. Because the reason why it's still better to be a worker in the United States, if you can find a job, than it is to be a worker in China, is because of unions, because of the ability to look at alternate systems um, outside the bounds of you know, what's within the law is, is how unions came to power in the 20th century and how that power was used to push forward um, very popular, um, progressive, you could say, uh, ideas to help individual workers. Now, when you look at those shocking numbers of 6% of, of uh, employees being unionized, um, it, it makes me want to think about <clears throat> where we were in the 1970s. Um, and the reason why I bring that up is because one of the reasons, one of the ways that the GOP got power is by breaking apart the unions. Um, and that was sort of key to the rise of Reaganism and um, this bullshit trickle down economics is they had to bust up these unions. And wasn't these- it in the first week or is it the first eight months of Nixon's uh, first term that he uh, held his ground on taking out the transportation the aviation union was that his mm-hmm. first yeah that was, was that right yeah, yeah but that and, was a yeah and you mentioned this whole mafiosa thing and it made me think about 
the Karl Rove tactic of using your enemy's strength uh, against them or using your own weakness uh, uh, to label your enemy, which is our perception of, of unions is kind of based on this like Jimmy Hoffa myth that the unions themselves were their own mafia, that these unions themselves were all about just protecting themselves in their own interest. Well, of course they are because they have to protect their own interests because yeah. no one else is. Now, that doesn't mean that they're trying to do it at the detriment of others. When the teachers strike, it's not because they hate kids or bus drivers. When the BART workers strike, it's not because they, they hate the other workers going. They have no other form of, of defense against um, the, the ethnic cleansing that's occurring against the working class in the United States. Exactly. So they break apart these unions. Now, of course, the basis of democratic support uh, in the, the modern era has been these unions, teachers unions, um, transportation unions, all of these, uh, these types of, of labor groups that you're talking about. And that's why uh, the Democrats were able to, to form um, functioning uh, uh, governments under several administrations in the 20th century is because they had the support, the mass support of working people. They were advocating for the working people. Now, once these unions broke up in the 80s and 90s, the Democrats realized they could not rely on the unions for that kind of support because it wasn't there. And if there's anything we know about politics, it's the second someone can't give you anything, the second someone can't give you votes, the second someone can't give you money is the second they say, fuck you, and they leave you to suffer and die. So where did they turn? How did Bill Clinton beat, uh, how did Bill Clinton beat George Bush in 92. Yeah, the Democrats were still able to say, hey, we're the working party people. Look at this rich guy, Bush, who doesn't know how a supermarket price scanner works. But in reality, the reason why he was able to come into power is because he got money from the banking class, from the capitalist class, from the corporate class, because he couldn't rely on the unions he had to rely on them for the rise to power. Now, Clinton uh, perfected that and was- Yes, but he still relied, it was still, he was still getting the union vote, although it was shrinking. Right, but- So they just kind of abandoned them and kicked them to the curb. Of course they did. Even though, yeah, and as but Bush, keep going. And as the, the, the poet laureate of politics, uh, George W. Bush said, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, we won't get fooled again. And the the labor <laughs> unions or the people who used to be in labor unions, the working class, they were not fooled again by this bullshit. Okay. So um, that uh, uh, breaking apart of the union coalition basically led to the fall of the sort of working class democratic party. And basically um Clinton sort of set up that model and Obama perfected it. And Joe Biden has sort of like kept it on life support enough to barely crawl back into executive power in the United States. And, and it's a, a crippled form of executive power um, to the point that, that Biden himself says, I will not use the constitution to, to, uh, to protect black people essentially. So yeah. He wants to give the image of being crippled. He's going to use it to continue protecting yeah. his network members, which are the banks, which exactly. are the monopolies, which are the kleptocrats. And he's going to be have a holier than thou 
you know, he'll do a little of the identity stuff just to, to make people happy, but there'll be no real power. It'll all be no. the illusion of power and rhetoric. And it's going to be, uh, I don't think it's going to look, yeah, from a political standpoint, I think 2024 and 2028 are going to be a shit show. And that's right. why, like, I like this idea of let's, let's work on that day-to-day building of formidable institutions so that when we do see the light of day in the 2030s, we'll be ready to hit the ground running. Because I don't think this, right. dec- this decade is going to be as a great... So I've been reading uh, a lot of non-US thinkers. I found this mm-hmm. book of 70 feminists from 70 countries published in 1984 to coincide with George Orwell's uh, book title. And my birth. And your birth, which, you know, I we know... I'm a child of Orwell. <laughs> yeah, you're Orwellian for sure. Mm-hmm. So I've been reading some of those essays. And then Samir Amin, he's a, you know, he, he did, he did pass a couple years ago, but mm-hmm. an amazing, uh, Good night, my political sweet dissident. What? Good night, my sweet prince. Yeah. And, and, um, I think he called our current state. So he wrote an update, new intro to a book he wrote right after the fall of the Berlin war. Um, when Francis Fukuyama and many others, and, and now what we call the neoliberal mm-hmm. establishment, called the end of history. You know, ne- liberal democracy had prevailed, everything's gonna be great. Sorry. He was one of the many dissenting voices that didn't uh. get any airtime. That basically, yeah, but it was, but that's what allowed also Clinton to rise in all this that this false notion of like democracy could do, do no harm. Yeah, exactly. And so this guy, what he calls our current state, and he, this was in 2014, but it holds, is like we're in a steady state of chaos right now. Yeah. And it's going to be continued ebb and flow disequilibrium, just going back and forth from different factions of authoritarian type people. Some talk prettier than yeah. others. But at the end of the day, they're not looking to support the building of the institutions we know for a better future. So we just got to do it anyway um, and get any little wins we can get, but not delude ourselves that, you know, any of them are going to save us. Um, And the only comment, the only statement that has ever been stupider than the end of history is (laughs) when some moron said that 9-11 was the end of irony. Which is of End course of irony. Which is of course the most ironic statement in the history of the English idiom. Yeah, I think the, the, the point was like, oh, this is like so serious, and America is so under threat, and our trivial lives before this are so silly that how could one possibly be ironic? When in Who actuality, that I forget, but I remember reading that and being like, what the fuck in reality the 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 generation that rose out of 9-11 right the 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 millennials uh, and now gen z uh the ones that that entered the working world as the economy crashed uh the ones that um that looked to economic opportunity by by joining the armed services uh uh right as we were descending into another uh, phase of forever war um this is the generation we are the generation who survived on irony if we looked to what the world is actually doing to us and and those in other countries our psyche would crumble into dribbling drooling psychosis but because we have such a such an adept 
uh, ability to navigate the horrors of modern civilization, this end of history, using irony, um, that is the only way that we've stayed uh, uh, sane. The only way you could look at this world and not want to fucking kill yourself is laugh it off about how ironic it all is. Mm-hmm. I think one of the ironies that I laugh at the most is anytime I see uh, a new scientific revelation or something groundbreaking, something was discovered, and then I read the article, I'm like, because I took us a bunch of anthropology classes, and a lot of what we looked at were, you know, what the colonized mind calls native knowledge or indigenous knowledge or whatever, right? And most of what is discovered. Or, or this or that has been known to other peoples yes. for hundreds or thousands of years, expressed differently, yet we still continue to like pat ourselves on the back. Mm -hmm. And so that's one side of it. And then the other side is I see this, the slow irony building of like, we thought we could just technology our way through every ill that ever faced us because we could completely control everything in the environment and as we start shedding that control generation by generation yeah. because they realize that's impossible we're basically going back to all of those dismissed forms of, of viewing the world valuing the world things that we thought were either backwards or unscientific or not rational and it's like uh that's and to me that's the most ironic thing because now we're using all of those techniques and you see it slowly popping up because we realize that this incredibly egoistic control mind of let's just, as Frank, Francis Bacon said, one of the first uh, Western European writers that kind of grounded the beginning of the enlightenment and capitalism. Bacon. He, he said the word rape mother earth a couple times in his writing. I mean, that's how it's translated in English, but it's like, we did that. Wait, was it English? Translated from Elizabeth. Right, not so it wasn't even translated. This is the words that he translated used. from the past. Translated from the uh, 16th century, but uh, 17th. Yeah, he but was a I find that, Shakespeare. So I find those two things, especially the last one, the most ironic. All the things that we dismissed as unscientific, not rational, this, that, or the other thing, now form the core or the growing core of what we see is the only way forward if we want to survive. Right. Well, look at the, <laughs> It's just like, oh my God. It's insane. And, and I think it can all be summed up in terms of the fashion of our generation. Now, I, I might be completely wrong about this. I'm not a historian of, of fashion beyond what I learned in theater school. But um, I think that all previous generations of people wore shit because they thought it was actually cool. That Sir Francis Bacon had that like dog collar, don't scratch your face thing on his shirt because people thought that was cool. That people in the 60s wore tie dye and long hair because they thought that looked cool. That people wore like neon colors uh, in the 80s and crimped their hair because they thought that was cool. Now our generation in college, I remember like all these guys wearing trucker hats, all these people like pretending like they dressed like the 80s. Uh, and the whole vibe was like, <laughs> what if I was wearing this hat? <laughs> what if I was, what if I was a guy from the eighties, <laughs> you know? And I think it goes back to Steve Martin, who was like, you know, 
what if I was a guy with an arrow through his hat? Isn't that so stupid that it's funny? It's like, well, you are a guy with an arrow through your hat. That is your <laughs> joke. You moron. Yeah. Banjo playing idiot. Um, so our generation was like, <laughs> what if I dress like this? And it's like, what we, what we now ironically realized is that as ironic as we thought it all was, we were still wearing trucker hats. And now mm -hmm. we've entered this mode of looking at the world around us, disconnecting ourselves from the pain of reality by saying, <laughs> what if Trump really was president? Like, what if this was reality? <laughs> Isn't it crazy that this is reality? <laughs> it's like, almost like this is, this is what the world is like now. It's, it's almost like, you know, 74 million people voted for Trump. Isn't that so crazy? And it's like, uh, this is your reality. And we have to, to take off our, our, our rose colored trucker hats and face this reality and not laugh it off. And I know that the like uh, the Brooklyn, Oakland intellectual class that we belong to, it's easy for us to do that because we're, we're, we're insulated. But for the rest of the world, they look at us trucker hat wearing fucks and go, fuck you, we're suffering. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, oh. we have the audacity to say, you know, like that, that article that you sent me uh, from the, the review of books that was like, oh, just learn how to code, you morons. You know, uh, we have the audacity, not you and I necessarily, but us as a class to look down on anybody who isn't able to, to be privileged enough to, to order seamless and, and laugh off the, the hilarious irony of how shitty the world is for the rest of people and then pretend like we give a shit because, you know. Mm-hmm. We, we so, donate stuff. <laughs> so I like that you frame it so that that idea of that because what I was thinking. So you'll appreciate this as a, uh, a stand-up comedian yourself, or what do you do? Uh, improv. Yeah, I, did, I did stand up for years and improv. And you know the the history of comedy. So what? As you were talking about the Steve Martin, and they're like, "Oh, isn't this funny?" It's like what I see is like this digression of the weight of humor from the age of satire and wit to that of situational irony and slapstick, where it just so smacks you in your face. And it's, it kind of is funny, like, you know, the first Will Ferrell movie, but then you realize he was, we, we loved him because we were teenagers and he was what, in his twenties or thirties. And it was hilarious, but it was bullshit. And so I was thinking it's that a right, challenge- look how, look how gross his butt is. What if we put someone this ugly naked on screen? It's like- uh, Right, so I was thinking that our challenge, our challenge, in the in, a little bit as Bernie does it, but someone was saying how Huey Long's speeches mm. back in the day, the Kingfish he did exactly. So I want to study some of those, and as much as we can, when we do bring humor to it, do it at the level of that satire and wit, but use it in a way that speaks to, as you said, the actual truckers, not our Brooklyn, Oakland right. crew that well, can laugh it off. Forget is that actual truckers have to wear trucker hats while they're bringing your, your fucking tofu cart to your house, you Brooklyn assholes. So, the, so I was thinking like our challenge is to bring that humor around to support true organizing of these new institutions that are truly going to diffuse power to people that actually do things, that yeah. don't just sit around waiting for stuff to be delivered to them. Not to say that they don't do anything either, but in that in that vein. Yeah, and there's plenty of good people who, who live that life. Let's explain what you're talking about, who, who Huey Long was. So Huey oh, yeah. Long, Thank you. as I recall, uh, was a, a 
populist uh, governor and I think maybe senator as well. He had a couple different uh, statewide uh, positions in Louisiana uh, mm-hmm. in the first half of, of the, the 20th century. Um, I believe the, the pre-World War II uh, era. And he was this populist guy and, you know, um, sometimes right, uh, sometimes wrong. You could say he was uh, an, an amoral man. You could say he was a moral man. Uh, he's a, a man whose who's ethical uh, sort of credibility uh, is hard for us to understand uh, in, in a 21st century mindset. But he was undeniably a man of the people. And certain people who hate Bernie would say, and hate Huey Long would say he was a Bernie. And certain people who who love uh, Trump would say and love Huey Long would say he was he was a Huey Long. But he is the the prototypical populist of living history in the United States. And there was a very famous book that was a, a sort of thinly veiled Romana Clef about Mr. Long, um, whose nickname, as I, as I mentioned earlier, was, was, was Kingfish, I believe. And it was called All the King's Men. Now, All the King's Men is a searingly satirical novel, but one filled with, with a great amount of pathos. And I believe that they made a film adaptation uh, sort of around contemporaneously uh, around the time that the, the book was written. And then Sean Penn starred in in a, uh, a more modern version of it in the early 2000s. And it's, it's a very faithful adaptation of this book, but it is like the driest, most unfunny, self-serious political film that I can recall. And to me, someone who is, is like braggadociously uh, liberal, so to speak, as Sean Penn, of course, a, a liberal guy who like beat the shit out of his uh, 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 wives and girlfriends, uh, that someone like him would make this movie about populist politics and like completely sort of misunderstand the tone and purpose of the of the the novel is the most ironic thing that I could possibly think of in terms of, of how you would adapt that, that, uh, that book. Um, and I, and I, and I believe the guy's name was like Willie Stark and he was, uh, he was a, a socialist in, in the novel. Um, and, you know, of course the, 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 um, the ending is, is very similar to the ending of Mr. Long, um, who was assassinated. The Kingfish was assassinated. Um, and he was um, he was the kind of guy who was, I think he was even criticized uh, by people, um, you know, who were like even more leftward than, than him in a sense. Um, and, and the interesting thing about him is he was in power and out of power, Mr. Long, um, at different points uh, in his his career. But he was always the leader of Louisiana. And I think that one of the things that that scares people about the Huey Longs, about the Trumps, about the uh, uh, the populace of the world is that they don't need power to be in power. 
And I don't remember why you brought up Huey Long, and I haven't thought about Huey Long in many, many years. But now, a hundred years uh, after his his rise to, to power in Louisiana, and ninety years after his assassination, I think it's time that we reevaluate these guys, these guys who were dangerous socialists. And it, it's interesting that anybody who is who has this power over people from Jesus to Martin Luther King, and I'm not comparing Huey Long and his ethics to, to Martin Luther King or Jesus, but every one of these types of people who doesn't need to be president to be the leader of, 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 of the world or America or whatever, they're always killed. And as we think about the end of empire in the United States, um, and we think about the fall of empire elsewhere, and the assassinations that occurred uh, uh, towards the end of Muhammad's caliphate, the assassinations that, that occurred towards the fall of Rome, and the assassinations that occurred uh, 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 that, that sparked off um, World War I and eventually led to the end of the European empires, and the, um, the assassination of the, the presidency itself that we've seen occur um, even when the president sort of can't be killed because the safety levels are so high post, post Kennedy and post Reagan that they haven't been able to kill you know, uh, anybody since Kennedy, that the way that we assassinate our presidents is through uh, scandal, through impeachment. I mean, not since I would say, um, Johnson, no, I'm sorry, not since um, motherfucking Eisenhower have we had a, what I would call successful administration in the United States. Johnson, or Kennedy gets murdered. Uh, uh, Johnson redirects all of our, our energies towards Vietnam and finds himself in a, in a horrible quagmire and has to sort of not resign in disgrace, but uh, step down and not seek nor accept. Uh, Nixon is, of course, uh, uh, he assassinates himself with Watergate. Uh, Gerald Ford, uh, because he he pardons this this horrible criminal Nixon, uh, his administration's barely administration. Jimmy Carter is completely undermined by the the uh, international political establishment, the Kissingers of the world, who use the the Iran uh, uh, embassy. Controversy to um, ruin his presidency, and then uh, uh, the second Reagan gets inaugurated. Suddenly, the hostages are released. Um, I guess Reagan could be considered a, a successful administration, but but you know, Iran Contra um, definitely uh, 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 soiled that administration. And then, of course, the 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 uh, the both Bushes, you know, their legacy has sort of tarnished. They were never able to sort of succeed in their goals because their interventionist foreign policy um, was was so harmful to to people abroad and normal people here. And then, of course, you see Obama, who was sort of assassinated in terms of his character by people saying, by millions of people saying that he is not in a legitimate, not only president, but not a legitimate American. And then Trump, of course, who's who's you know, 
whose uh, uh, presidency is an abject failure. He never accomplished any of his goals except uh, sowing chaos. Uh, uh, he ruined his own administration, but also the Democrats did the best that that they could to. Wait, from a from the mafia perspective, though, Trump was one of the most successful in his goals. Yeah. He wanted to give monies and history. powers to his network and the, his his henchmen's network, and they they definitely did that. They've completely taken over the Fed. They and they've distributed, I think, now six trillion dollars. Yeah to their friends. So that seems yeah. pretty successful if you're defining success on the goal stated. Oh, plenty of people have benefited during these administrations. <laughs> but isn't that crazy? Very few. Because I like because I liked what you said earlier also about, you know, labeling people like Long and others and unions like mafias. It's like one of the key, it misses the nuance that one is power over and it's a small group that's looking to enrich themselves because they believe that they're providing in such a great service to humanity and that if they're not enriched millions of times more than everyone else, the whole system will fall apart. So that's the mafia mindset and the power over the unions, the populist people like Huey Long and others. They're power for or power by. Mm-hmm. And the people they're representing, of course, it's some of it's transactional, but it's like, of course, you do things for people that do things for yeah. you. He had very popular programs in Louisiana that he helped people with. Right, because he was just trying to diffuse power to, you know, for lack of a better word, the 99% or the 99.9%. Yeah. So it's, it's it, so obviously, if you oversimplify things, you're like, oh, yeah, the... Yeah, it was like the Jimmy Hoffa. Oh, they're all just a bunch of uh, crooks. And I mean, if you do look at a lot of union history in the U.S., though, around that There's time, tons of crooks. But that's well, not some the... of the big unions were were becoming um, hand in glove with with some of the uh, national politicians for their own power. But that wasn't the fault of the union members or the idea of union. Right. It doesn't mean you gut unions. Republicans actively gut them. Democrats are chicken shit and feekless and just don't support them anymore. Um, but yeah, that was a good s- summary of the last 70 years. So where are we now? And uh, yeah, I mean, isn't that, isn't that crazy that we essentially have had all of this like sort of backstabbery occurring uh, since, since Eisenhower. And it's hard not to look at that and think about all of the infighting uh, and assassinations that were occurring uh, as as Muhammad's caliphate fell after his death. Um, it's hard not to compare this to the et tu brew of, 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 you know, the last true Roman emperors. You know, we're still living through history. I mean, our parents were like alive during all of these times. I mean, we're not going to know how we, how we look back on that but i think we will see you know we'll look and we'll see like fdr the you know his his like uh basically uh you know he he earned 16 years he didn't serve out 16 years but you know uh, uh he earned uh 16 years of of time in office and was the most effectual effective uh, uh president in history and then you look at someone like eisenhower who you know i i don't think he was a, a great president but he he had a stable administration and achieved many, many goals, including um, some of the uh, some of the uh, uh, um, modern um, national uh, work projects that we see today, like the the highway system and, and all of that stuff. 
And then after that, just violence, infighting, and scandal have plagued the executive branch to the point where none of these presidents have really managed to help anybody, Ben. They're friends, and uh, that's why the mafia thing works. They help their network yeah. members, a very, very, very small portion of people, because they're not governing. They're running yeah. it like a business. And I think if I could add one thing in terms, I've been thinking a lot, well, you said other empires falling yeah. and running parallel to the history of Eisenhower till now is what we call offshore banking. Mm. And so one way I'm thinking about the fall of empires and why, you know, history, the idea that it doesn't repeat, it rhymes mm -hmm. that ours. So this is what I'm thinking. So basically offshore banking was started by London banks somewhere in the mid to late fifties. Yes. So around the Eisenhower the Dulles brothers, the Bush and Prescott families uh, uh, were, were key to this. Like all of the families that, that controlled the intelligence operations and executive power of the country for the next 50 years and, and probably you could say beyond, uh, were all involved in this. Right. And it was, it was described because the American banks really brought it forward in the 1960s because they provided all the players. Someone made the analogy of like the Wimbledon which started in Britain, but most of the players aren't British. So basically running parallel to all of this um, ever since the New Deal era in the US, in which we finally had an effectual counterpower to corporations, because we were reminded over and over that, you know, Roosevelt, quote unquote, bailed out the US government at one point because private sector monopolies had more power and money than the federal government. And we're seeing that that's being tried again. And they tried to overthrow him. Uh, folks, go back to the Inside Jobs uh, era and, and find the episode about the business plot. And you'll see that that uh, they tried to take him down. They tried to sort of assassinate him in a seven days in May type scenario. But please continue. Interesting. I didn't know that. So I think. Yeah, they tried to take him down. They almost wow. did. So there's, so there's even a recent whole book written. I've heard this analogy. Someone wrote the whole book about how the big tech um executives are very much like the robber baron railroad tycoons of their day but oh, the big twist here with the offshore banking and all of this um these new forms of moving money and power around the world is that there's no sense of of ethnicity or, or nationalism there that they're free-floating entities they all see themselves i mean that's why we have some of them trying to colonize mars they don't see themselves as part of any country, at least 100 years ago. Not even humanity. So what we have now is not only a diminishing, I mean, I, I still believe, and that's why I think we still work for it, to reinstate the power of our national government to be a counterforce against these evils. Right. These people are like the X-Men. Like Elon Musk considers himself like like one of the X-Men in those early X-Men movies. Divine Ride of Kings. Right. And they always feel like, well, we are the natural, you know, Magneto or whatever says we're, you know, we're the natural evolution of humanity. We have these amazing powers. We can shoot yeah. fucking laser beams out of our eyes and, and we have, you know, swords coming out of our hands. And obviously but we, I mean, with genetic engineering, we're going to have basically like created mutants and, you know, uh, essentially evolution is mutation to, to begin with. But these people see themselves as fucking Magneto. That well, right. we have these incredible powers. Like, what do we have to do with these these other fucking people? They're they're nothing. Yeah, and what makes it 
so easily corruptible is they only need to convince a few politicians to go along with their corruption and to, which is all illegal. They don't even need like, to convince them. They just need to write a fucking check. Well, they do to some degree because one of the biggest, so basically most of, we know tens of trillions, if, if not close to a hundred trillion dollars is in some account somewhere, what we call offshore. So it has no home. And Jeffrey Epstein was probably the guy managing it before he self-emulated. But there's, but then that's, yeah. But then, so one of the biggest reports that came out from a collaboration of in, investigative journalists uh, on the 18th was from, if you search, search for FinCEN, um, finan it's the uh, Financial Center for, our Financial Crimes Enforcement Network. So basically we have the mechanism where if you work at any of the banks or financial institutions, you report suspected fraud. So there's every year, and this is in the US, there's one of these in 2 million of these reports generated a year. The staff assigned to this to review those is so pitifully small that they can barely even get through several hundred. And so what happened is a, a collaborative of journalists over the last, I think, one or two years uh, looked into either hundreds or thousands of these claims. And their estimate is that, you know, not every suspected fraud is is actually fraudulent, but their estimate is that every year, probably at least 200 billion, if not five, six, seven hundred billion dollars of financial transactions are completely fraudulent. The biggest mm -hmm. epicenters being through Deutsche Bank um jp morgan um and then a bunch of unregulated ones but basically that we have i'm sure own a piece of trump too oh yeah no so trump uses all of them use it even yeah. a bunch of it's not just the, the republic it's also the democrat it's all the oligarchs and they oh, get a few of their friends to and the way they turn the blind eye is by not adequately staffing the uh that department that could actually do something about it. So like in my mind, if Biden actually wanted to do something to govern and not just be a mafia boss, he would vastly increase the staffing at the IRS, the SEC, and Financial Crimes Enforcement Network. It's not much, you know, we got a business. When there's business, we have, there's, you know, we, we earn money and there's the business and then the people... I've done more for people in the business I've ever done before back in my day. I'm the one I've done I'm the more. One that freed the blacks from the business of the people who were against. I ended business. slavery. I was there. It's like, dude, you're not you're not that old. I was working at the pool, making money, uh, making sure the other people didn't go in the water. Is here we? Then that's I did more for black than you. This is the uh, guy that, yeah. It's like, sir, I'd like to ask you a follow-up question, but I I well, don't you're actually always, know. You're journalists always interviewing, ask questions. The interview is supposed to just be me uh, and you talk. You know, I just talk, and then you come in and you say, "Hey, Joe, what do you know? I'll do push-ups, but you know, I'm not gonna answer any questions." Bye. Exactly. Like that's what the next four years are gonna. It's be. perfect for that. It's per these people that you're talking about. It's so. It's almost even better. You know, like like Trump would go out and say these things that were like so outrageous. So these people could just get away with financial murder, basically. And everyone would be so distracted by the fact that he's like, you know, what we should do is just make, we should just drink bleach like Diet Coke. And people would be so confounded by this craziness and be like, oh, it is, he's breaking so many democratic norms that they let people get away with financial murder. Um, and now, you know, Joe and his quote ideology, unquote, and his, 
his uh, uh, the way he presents himself to the press is so incoherent that it's not even that we'll be like distracted or confounded by what he's saying. We'll be spending so much time figuring out the fuck he's talking about that four years will pass and, and another and another heist will will occur. Of course. I think I like this quote someone brought up from Obama's recent book because I'm expecting that we're going to see a lot of this. He at one point says that the laws as written deemed epic recklessness and dishonesty in the boardroom or on the trading floor less blameworthy than the actions of a teenage shoplifter, which is obviously a lie. That's not true. It's just that they're not they're not written to differently. They're applied differently. So Jed, Jed uh, Radkoff is one of the, the best writers I found recently. It, I think he was a, a former federal prosecutor. But um, basically how we continue to throw hundreds of thousands of people in jail every year for petty crimes like shoplifting or graffiti. And, you, and we send zero people. And they are, and then, but then they use like that, that mentality that Obama and other establishment Democrats use, which is that it's, that it's not that it's not actually illegal, which is a, a complete lie because you can look at the laws and there's plenty of laws that you could enforce if you chose to, but then usually you get down to their, some of the things they don't say in the same, you know, in the same sentence, but it's basically this idea that they're too big to jail. They don't want to disrupt the economic, yeah, they don't want to, no, I think uh, someone else did. The idea wasn't mine alone, but mine. Uh, look, Ben, uh, these people are too big to jail. And I believe in an America uh, where we can put uh, everybody in jail uh, that we don't agree with. And uh, that's what we're moving towards. And uh, my friend Joe agrees. Isn't that right, Joe? Uh, yes. When, when you got to go put him in jail, then nobody's free. Uh, that's right, Joe. Wait, I, if you put one... Wait a second. And you don't have to put them in jail, sir. You could just take away their access to power and the levers of power, right? I'm not saying put them in jail. Well, you, you got levers in jail. There's what you put a lever and then. No, but I'm saying no lever. jail, sir. Can you just take away their power? Treat well, them. You take enough. Take, you take enough. You take lever. You take a lever. Levers like a stick, like a bar. And you take enough uh, levers. You put them around levers of power, and then they're in a jail. Lever. Can I ask you if you still agree? So, it's so the when worst you Biden's like so bad. Yeah, I know, but it's getting close. <laughs> Let me let you practice. So, so o Obama or Biden, if you remember your Attorney General Eric Holder, he's on the record as saying, um, "This was, I think, in two thousand nine or ten. I am concerned that the size of some of these institutions becomes so large that it does become difficult for us to prosecute them." When we are hit with indications that if you do prosecute, if you do bring a criminal charge, it will have a negative impact on the national economy, perhaps even the world economy. Do you still think that we should apply that same logic today, President-elect Biden? I mean, he probably does. He's just fell asleep. He fell asleep. He fell asleep. But that's the kind so of thing that the like writing will be in the details. All I have to do is look at the budget allocation to these three bodies. And if it's not 500 percent bigger. And I'm not saying this can pass the Senate. This is in his OE, uh, OMB, his Office of Management and Budget, the president's budget, you know, which is very different than Congress sometimes. If he doesn't put that out there, it means that he still believes that there's too big to jail. I don't want to disrupt. What if we lose to China? What if, what if we can't tackle climate change? 
What if we can't fight for peace? You know, all of these like uh, Orwellian sentences that they throw out. We have to fight, fight for, peace. for peace. Fight for peace. Well, I mean, that goes back to the uh, that orthodoxy of the elites that we were talking about, that it's so easy for uh, folks who are at the cocktail parties um, as they discuss what they want to write in the next uh, editorial uh, uh, in the New York Times, um, that they can fight wars, that they can declare war with their, their pens, you know, that everybody that was there was helping uh, march into war in, in Iraq and Afghanistan and Yemen or whatever. It was very easy for them to, to fire the first shot, uh, you know, with their MacBook. Mm -hmm. uh, but meanwhile, it's the, it's the actual people that suffer. And as we all know, we're, we're pitted against each other. Sorry, go ahead. No, exactly. Sorry. I wanted to, the exact line from the article you're talking about. Few sites in Washington are more familiar than an intellectual urging quote unquote total war from the safety of the keyboard yeah there you go and it's that mindset it's like oh yeah we need to fight for peace we need total war war is justified quite often if we're fighting for democracy and 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 you know and then you look behind it it's like where are we fighting for democracy oh wait that's weird they all have oil there or some <laughs> rare minimal rare minimum mineral we need for our iphones or our laptops it's like are we or are we just imperialist? And and if you don't answer that question directly, President-elect Biden, then, uh, you know, on to the next one. Of course we're imperialists. And I think that we should we should round out this episode and, and talk a little bit about uh, what led to American empire and uh, what we can learn about the fall of others. Now, you sort, okay. of look, you sort of look through the history of empire. And the fundamental thing that all empires have in, in common is, first of all, they uh, at one point were the, the largest uh, military power uh, on the planet, and in many cases in the history of the planet. And the other constant is they all fall. So aside from, from this uh, military dominance that allows a particular culture or ethnicity uh, or nation state to become uh, empire, there are some other things that that sometimes go along. So you you have um, you know sometimes you have your your, your caliphates, which uh, kind of uh, uh, bind together uh, the empire through shared uh, religion, right? Then you have uh, some empires like Genghis Khan's empire, where yeah, there, were, there he had you know tribal culture going on there. I don't know too much about it, so I, I don't want to you know be an asshole about it. But uh, his power was was more purely militaristic you know his power was just power for the sake of power violence for the sake of power expansion for the the, the sheer uh, sake of of expansion and then you have uh, uh more of the you know the roman empire where yeah there is this sort of like there is like a religious aspect with the with the the greco-roman gods but it's it's more like it's like the religion of 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 rome was more like um like marvel fandom <laughs> where it's like oh look how look how cool we can we can you know look how cool these avengers are like, isn't that cool this is who we are we're fucking avengers aren't we guys we're just asking. like you mean like that gladiator mindset is that what you're getting at no i just mean that like you know 
there, there was a religious sense that there was sort of like an almighty uh, uh, mandate for the Roman Empire to rule. Oh, it, yes. It was less about like a kind of covenant with God and a sort of spirituality and an ethical nature as it was like, these are our fucking Avengers. This is our Justice League. Look, look what kind of ass-kicking gods we have, right? Is, that, um, is it similar to the American, like that manifest destiny that we need to go out and explore because we're the chosen? Like that? Is- uh, that's, that, that's probably part of it. And like I said, I'm not really, a, I'm a historical uh, dilettante as uh, right, but you're also trying to do this in five minutes you're telling yeah, three thousand years of history in <laughs> exactly. four minutes so it's okay we, and you then know, you have, keep going and then you have you know i wouldn't call the sort of um i wouldn't call the uh, um uh crusade era uh european powers quite empires yet but there was a religious aspect there that that was more of the sort of manifest destiny where it's like, well, we got to go in and we got to like, mm. you know, get rid of these, these Muslims and take over Jesus's land and all this bullshit. And then as we move into the, the previous millennium and we see some of the more like recognizable cultures develop their empires, you know, we see um, obviously, uh, uh, the United Kingdom, we see uh, 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 the French as, as they, they spread into, into the United States and into Africa and into Asia, as we see, of course, the, the Spanish Empire um, and their lust for power and violence and gold. We see a lot of these, these elements that I'm talking about before, the sort of like religious aspect, oh, we got to spread Catholicism, oh, we got to spread uh, whatever the religion is. Um, and then, of course, it's just the military dominance. Hey, we got a cool navy, so we're going to go fucking kick some indigenous ass. Um, but then you see, as you know, as you point out, like capitalism is a fairly, fairly modern concept, right? You sort of see that that these 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 fledgling empires in the previous millennium are very focused on trade you know we got to open up we got to get the spices you know from india we got to go down into south america and get all the fucking gold um sure they wanted to you know torture uh, natives into becoming catholic but what they really care about was the fucking gold mm-hmm. right so and so you get to this by the time you get to the 19th century and and then you know into uh the 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 uh uh, post-industrial revolution empire um the the most prominent of course is the united kingdom the british you see that it is it's not so much a religious or cultural empire because the british were perfectly happy to have uh people under their their rule in india be uh, uh be muslim or be uh, um or be uh, Hindi, they would prefer if they if if they had been Christian, but they didn't really fucking care what God they were praying to, as long as they um, could maintain economic and trade dominance. Mm-hmm. And then you know everyone talks about oh the, the real reason why the British Empire was so great was because of their fucking navy, which of course that goes back to the militaristic you know, element that you need to have military power to, to dominate. And that's how they became this worldwide empire because they had this amazing naval power, right? Um, but the reason why they were able to hold on to what was at the time the hugest empire in history, and I think probably you could say, still say it was, I, I, I think, um, is because they were very efficient managers. 
And they knew how to keep these countries in line with very efficient, very British management. The colonial system that they had um, focused more on how to, to uh, administer empire and less about how to, to uh, uh, spread their, their culture. Now, obviously they thought they were the greatest culture in history, but they were more interested in making sure that the power structures and more importantly, the economic structures in place were sustainable. And they were. They were mm -hmm. up until England had to redirect those, uh, redirect their empire from expansion to defense, right? To, to uh, uh, trying to quote, save the world from the Germans who of course were trying to start their own empire. Now, do you think that the British did this because they gave a shit about Polish people or Jewish people? Or do you think that they realized that they had fallen into a Thesudian trap with the Third Reich? What do you think? I mean, the answer is pretty fucking clear. Because the British did plenty of, of shit that the Nazis did too. They committed plenty of genocide themselves. Well, I think, so I guess you could, a different perspectives, but viewpoints, but one would be the Thucydian trap. I think that's how the U.S. might right. also excuses its behavior, that it's, if it doesn't do this, then China or Russia will, so we better do it because we'll do it better than they will. Right. And so while all of this bullshit is being, is being heralded about, oh, we got to stop the Nazis and, you know, oh, we're the defenders of democracy in the world, what is happening? The emergence of the modern international banking class, and I don't say this as some veiled insult against Jewish people, I say it uh, uh, as, um, as a, a definition of what you were talking about earlier, which was this nationless, nationless borderless globalism that uh, had no ideology, no religion, no ethical bellwether. Um, and it emerged during the, 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 uh, uh, the period of uh, the, the, the fall of, uh, of the economy in the United States after, during the Great Depression and sort of solidified at the beginning of the Cold War in the late 40s well, and early 50s. It's real, I mean, it really coincides with computing power because most course. of what we're talking about are entries in a computer screen. When people say like, oh, we need to create money or print money, they're just fucking keyboard strokes. Right. And by the 50s, we had enough computing power to, to keep track of all of this stuff. And obviously, yeah. That is why the glue of worldwide financial power is the idea of credit. And the idea of using a pure, a purely, quote, logical, unquote, computer model to identify the potential value of every individual on the planet. Now you could say, oh, computers, you know, video games and pornography and communication. Yeah, those are all the things that distract us from what the age of the computer is all about, which is figuring out how much you're worth. 
figuring out if you're able to, to repay your credit card, to figure out whether you're able to make your car payment, to figure out whether or not you're going to be able to pay off your mortgage. But we have to, I mean, because this brings up a good point that there's also many ways of defining credit. This is really a debt-based mindset from the perspective of a financial capitalist who's looking at ways of accumulating as much financial money for its own sake. And so everyone, the more you can reduce individuals or even systems to financial worth in this way, the easier it is for you to just accumulate for no real productive actual outcome, just so that your number is bigger than your friends on the yacht. But then yes. when it comes down to it, one of our biggest challenges, the, the one I've seen the most come up is called the inclusive value ledger. There's a mm -hmm. lot of ways of valuing an individual, their contribution to society, the credit, which is really just trust in the future and someone following through with their, uh, what they say they're going to do and that it's going to add value. So giving that credit, there's a lot of ways to distribute credit, to record it, to bookkeep it. Right now, we're living under this singular financial capitalist paradigm, which is also what you're talking about, the international um, bankers. Um, and you don't, I wouldn't even call them bankers anymore. They're all actually, they're mostly pirates, crooks, mafiosos. Some of them really do look at, like, under, I mean, it would be people like at our company that are actually assessing credit uh, risk. Most of them are just looking at it as a game and how can I get my thing to be supported more than your thing? It has nothing to do with actual reality. It's all completely abstract. Because all they want is just that bigger number so that they can brag to their friends on their yachts. Oh, look how, and look how wonderful this financial instrument that I created called, you know, uh, 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 bundling these subprime mortgages together. Look how fucking clever I am. So while mm -hmm. we're distracted by all of, and myself included, while we're distracted by, you know, the lurch towards illiberal democracy, while we're distracted by the, the fall of American empire, what we're, what we're not seeing is the rise of the next empire, which is that, that mafia that you're talking about, that borderless, humanless mafia. Because the, the, the one thing about the fall of empire that's another constant is that at some point, maybe not the next year, maybe not the next decade, maybe not the next century, out of that vacuum, that eight pound auric vacuum, another power will rise. So we are mm -hmm. seeing like in this, this like cold civil war that we're seeing in the United States between what you could say right and left populism with these moderates in the middle of just fucking making money and laughing. Um, what you're seeing is the, the schism of the of of the the roman empire with eastern empire and of course eastern empire roman empire they went their separate separate ways and you know the byzantine empire arose so going back to so what is that byzantine empire that's about to rise so going back to that nexus the middle of the 20th century uh as the as world war ii transfers into to uh, uh the cold war you see the, the British banking class, you see uh, uh, the American intelligence class and industrial class, and then you see the fascist cultural and uh, 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 scientific class, all sort of like 
meet together while the rest of the world is distracted by World War II, right? Uh, and we got IBM, who is figuring out uh, through uh, uh, counting dead Jews uh, in Eastern Europe, figuring out really great ways to, to uh, uh, identify who can get a mortgage uh, for the next 50 years. Uh, and then you have um, all of these homies who are working for these same banks and then are also going off and, and running the, the CIA, the Dulles brother kind of guys. And um, you are seeing these Germans who the Werner von Braun's who were basically inventing the ways that, that this class will need to literally get off the planet. Those people that you were talking about who like, they don't even, they don't even, they're the mutants who are just like, go want to colonize Mars and get the fuck out of there. Those people are combining the computer power of IBM who then teamed up with the Nazis and created the space exploration rocket power to get off this crumbling, being raped planet, as Francis Bacon would say, uh, and then combined with the, the military uh, uh, editorial new, fake news-making apparatus of the intelligence state and combining them together to create this new Byzantine empire that's about to launch out of the ashes of the American empire and its economic and cultural ruin and leave us all fighting over abortions and, and bump stocks and fucking gay cakes uh, at the Supreme Court while they blast off to fucking Mars and laugh. Mm -hmm. Maybe not literally in our lifetime will Elon Musk must be on Mars, but that is the project of the, of the, uh, uh, the 21st century Byzantines, as I think we can call them. Mm -hmm. To leave us behind and establish their mutant banking class on the outer limits of our solar system. Does that sound insane? Does that sound histrionic? Of course, but I'm a mildly insane histrionic person that is trying to use my, my minimal grasp of history, computers, and economics to try to figure out what the fuck it is that's happening. And the best way I can think of it is that a bunch of bankers, spies, and, and Nazi rocket scientists have uh, 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 combined together to fuck us over and get over the, and get off this planet. But it's not too hysterical because these things that you're saying are actually happening. They are, like if, 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 if there were no private projects trying to build their own spacecraft and colonize Mars, yeah, someone could say you're histrionic, but these things are actually happening. Right. You're not making things up. I know. I feel like I'm grasping at all these things and trying to pull them together. And I sound crazy while I'm doing it. No, not really. I mean, someone might call you crazy, but you're not because you're trying to synthesize a whole bunch of strings. And what we don't know is, first, if someone tries to go colonize Mars in our lifetime, most people that study this stuff would say they'll die. Um, yeah. either before they get there or once they get there. You have to send an embryo. You have to send an embryo and basically grow a human as you're sending them to Mars. That's the and then I guess like the biggest difficulty I think day to day is like, you know, as we try to work towards this brighter future, we don't know if at some point we'll go out, will we get there with a whimper or a bang? And by that, I mean, will we slowly kind of putter along in this, in this constant state of chaos um, in which there's not another massive dislocation and disruption. Um, yes. And then we'll have a breakthrough in our lifetime, or will it be the bang, which is World War III, which is there's massive disruption and dislocation. The two of us may well die, 
a lot of us may well die. Yeah. But we'll will and so I think part of the hysteria right now is constantly trying to prevent that. But the problem that I see a lot of times is we're all looking for these short-term things, thinking the world's going to end next year or tomorrow. If we don't get the right person on the Supreme Court. Exactly. And when we and we get caught up in talking about all these short-term things, which have some importance. We think of the world as congressional terms at a time, two years at a time. That's an insane way to look at the world. And then we look at money by the quarter or by the month, these monthly reports. By the day, we look at stock tickers. We're trying to predict what's happening day by day. It's crazy. Exactly. And and so what it is, is like, you know, you could talk about that once in a while, but if, if there aren't enough of us working on those long-term building blocks, when things could actually crumble, which is not next month or next year, we're not, we're not going to get there. And, you know, someone could have said this 15 or 20 or 30 years ago. So one of the problems also is that at any given time in the next 10 or 15 years, uh, I, I think partly due to just some big uh, anomaly in climate one year, which could leave tens of millions of people dead, or another uh, virus or bacteria far more deadly than the coronavirus. Some of these ones that are tick or flea-borne have 30 to 40% mortality rates. And in just the last few years have even gotten into not just the U.S., but everywhere because of the international movement of, of livestock and food and other stuff like that, that these incredibly deadly tick and flea-borne things are no longer just in like the Siberian tundra where almost nobody lives, but are now in most countries. It's like, you know, we don't know what could possibly start that bang or will we be able to prevent it? But it's saying that all along, we still need to do some long-term planning because just in case it doesn't happen for 60 years, if all we do is think day to day, when 60 years arrives, it's going to be a, yeah. it's not going to look pretty. I mean, right now you're talking to a guy, I just referred to the Elizabethan uh, time period as modern history. So <laughs> yeah, when you think about the, speaking of big bangs, I mean, when you think about uh, uh, what a blink in the eye, the last, you know, what a blink in the eye, a two-year congressional term is, or, you know, we think about these, it's a lifetime appointment to the Supreme Court. Okay. And you're like, and it sure. used to not be as meaningful because it was lifetime for someone who was in their 60s. So you're like, okay, it's not my life. But now, you know, you appoint someone who's 42 and they're going to live to be 142. You're like, <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ. Because you know they're going to do all sorts of genetic stuff. And they're going to, some of them will live to be 120. Yeah. And so it's just, it's, uh, it's like, I want to find out who said just ended that last, that quote, yeah. um, it's easier to see the end of the world than the end of capitalism. I love I it. I keep going back to that one, but I want to find out who actually said it and get a little context around the that 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 line. Because I I've been using it a lot. I've been, I've seen it pop up, but I want to know who said it and in what context. So I'm going to do a little research. <laughs> I know we keep repeating the same cool quotes and then not attributing to anything. Maybe Mussolini said that. Who fucking knows? So I know. I hope so. I think we've um, you know. To close it out, when we're, when we're sort of facing this kind of like internal hysteria of trying to figure out what the fuck is going on and exhausting ourselves through these conversations and trying to live an ethical life, 
uh, in a time of uh, moral breakdown, how could we not fall into the arms of the Huey Longs of the world who offer us a solution? How could we not? And how dare these fucking asshole uh, keyboard cowboys who are figuring out how they want to bury themselves under the earth when the nuclear apocalypse happens. Or I call them they, desk jockeys. Desk jockeys. How dare they judge anybody for seeking the sucker of populists? Maybe they don't have all the answers. Maybe they have some of the wrong answers. But they're offering something to the people of this world. Hope mm-hmm. that it didn't have to be like this and it doesn't have to be like this. Mm-hmm. And our challenge is getting the populace that are for and by the people, not to just talk that language to then be the mafia boss over the people. And that takes the nuance. And I think we get to a lot. Dissecting it all. Well, there you go. Uh, As Bill O'Reilly says, I'll give you the last word. (laughs) No, no, let me give you the last word. I guess the the last one <laughs> then is uh, uh, it's it's Christmas Eve. Mm. Uh, my my sister in law just dropped off our our, our Christmas presents, uh, so we're trying to keep uh, a, a secular uh, a Christmas alive during these crazy times. So whether you celebrate Festivus or Hanukkah, uh, or you're a Jew who grew up in the Soviet Union and and you have a Christmas tree uh, on New Year's, um, I hope you you uh, live through this holiday season and see 2021 and um and i hope that that arbitrary dividing line that everyone seems to think will be the uh uh moment of salvation for a a battered and bruised humanity um enjoy stay safe thanks lee that was perfect you got it Could you send me a link to this podcast so I could share it with a uh, friend that would like to listen to it? You don't know how to find our podcast? Well, of course I could search for it and I'd find it in less than 40 seconds, but I was hoping you could send me the direct link. Okay. Or you could tell your (laughs) friend to go on fucking iTunes and search Liberal Guilt Radio. I told him, but I'd like to supply him with the link. Okay, Okay, I'll send you a fucking link. Let's not argue. Let's not argue anymore. No, that is yeah, you're right. That's exactly that's exactly <laughs> what the the brokers of power want is is two people who are demographically nearly identical uh, arguing with each other about podcasts on their own podcast. I learned today if you don't put a period in front of the at sign when you tweet that it doesn't go to the Vox Populace. It gets caught up in this little echo chamber, so to speak. So I learned something today about social media. I learned something too. You get older and lamer every day, Ben. (laughs) Thank you. That's actually my goal. Every day I wake up and I ask myself, how could I I cultivate this image? Yeah, of being lame and old. And today it was, let me make a tweet, make a mistake, and then tell everyone about that mistake. There you go. All right, get the fuck out of here. Thank you, sir. Goodbye. Goodbye.